0: parfait going to read tonight from Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively, for the woman represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are now to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, O barren woman who bears no children, break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Well, Lord, give us wisdom for revelation from this complex piece of Scripture. Amen. Uh, This is what you call hospital pass. Um, The vicar kindly uh, allocated the most complicated piece of uh, the Galatians text to me, and next week he will triumph in chapter 5, which is kind of the the pinnacle of all good things in Galatians. Uh, But I'm running with it tonight because, you know, um, all of Scripture is God-breathed. And and all is useful for for teaching and education, and all offers revelation. And if we're going to smash up Galatians like a piece of Brighton rock, you're going to see the word freedom written in the fragments all over the floor. And there's something here really powerful about this passage in Galatians, because we have to contextualize it again and say, actually, why was this significant? And and this, in a way, for the uh, first century believer, was like listening to an age-old story. It would be like them talking about 1966 and the last time we won the World Cup. Now, everyone has heard this story over and over and over and over again, but not just for 55 or 60 years, but, but for 550 or 600 years. So so the the familiarity of this story is so significant to both the Jewish hearer and also the Gentile hearer, and it establishes something really, really significant for Paul. He he both appeals to the Jewish hearer who is sceptical about his credentials, and it also appeals to a Gentile community who are looking for acceptance and freedom from the judgment associated with the Jewish community within the Gentile church, church. So Paul's chosen a shared narrative, a narrative of real significance, and he's saying, look, this story matters to you all, and it's a bit like a genealogy. I was going to do something with this talk, which I haven't done, but um, I I messaged my dad and said, Dad, have we got a family tree, you know, for the Vanderhearts? And, um, and he said, I'm not sure, like, I'll dig around. Anyway, he came back to me kindly. Dad, if you're watching, thank you. He came back to me kindly with a list of the van der Harts, uh, starting up with Jan Vanderhart, who was an architect in Amsterdam in the, in the 1750s. And, you know, and it, was, it was interesting, but I know you guys would find it boring. The thing is, it was interesting to me because it's my genealogy, but it's not really that interesting to you because there aren't that many notable people in it, not notable English people anyway, and we all know that's what it's all about tonight. But, but imagine if I said to you all, I've got your genealogy in my hands. Do you want to know who your ancestors are? He'd be like, yeah. Any kings? Well, yeah, kind of. You know, you'd be excited. And that's what Paul's saying to this church in Galatia. He's saying, look, I, I've got a story and you're part of it. His opening statement, if you like, sets the... The, the outflow for, for, for the challenge he's going to bring he says tell me you who want to be under the law are you not aware of what the law says and this sums up everything that you need to know in advance because he's effectively suggesting that this is the turkeys voting for christmas argument you know, a lot of people want to bring the law back and saying you know i think we should be you know guys should get circumcised which sounds painful but it's not as painful as the segregation that was beginning to be introduced into the church in glacier. So, you know, obviously circumcision as an adult doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but, but, but less fun than half the church going off to eat in a private room, ceremonial food that you weren't allowed to partake in, and leaving you in the other room with your friends feeling like second-hand believers. Imagine that there was a sort of apartheid within the early church between those who were of Gentile descent and those who were of Jewish descent or Jewish conversion. That's what it would have felt like to those uh, Gentile believers who'd received a gospel based on grace, not on their legacy, not on their genealogy. And that was a pain that wouldn't just end after a couple of weeks of physical trauma, that was a trauma that was going to go on and shape the church as it grew forward. No wonder Paul's so animated about what's going to happen. And so to illustrate his concern, he uses these two stories that begin in Genesis 16 and 17 to map out the trajectory of those who return to the law versus those who stay in a space of grace. And the story really begins with Abraham, to whom God promises in Genesis fifteen five. An an abundant inheritance. God says, look up to the sky and count the stars. That's how many offspring you're going to have. Can you imagine God taking you out on the hillside and looking up at the Milky Way and saying to you, you're going to have that many offspring. Now imagine you're 100 years old. Your wife is 90 and completely barren. You haven't had a child for your entire life. And God says, see that? That's how many offspring you're going to have. Now, think about that from a faith perspective for a minute. Now, if you were 25 and you were standing on that hillside, you'd be like, yeah, I reckon. But at 100, what do you reckon now? Now, whenever we're in a situation where we hear the promise of God, we not only struggle for faith, but we also struggle for embarrassment. We're like, I'm struggling for faith, Lord, but then I'm also struggling in the embarrassment of wondering whether you can do this. Now, I feel almost, I feel a humiliation coming on. And it's not just my humiliation I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the humiliation of the Lord. I'm like, I don't want God to look stupid. I don't want God to look like, you know, he can't do it. And so we have a tendency in life to decide that we're going to help God out. We're going to protect God's dignity. And so what happens with Abraham and Sarah, who were God-fearing people, is that they decided that they would not only struggle in faith, but they'd also protect the dignity of the Lord. They hatched a plan for a way in which that might be possible. Think of the irony of that. Oh, I know. We could help God out if you sleep with your maidservant, Hagar, and then you could have a child, and then maybe you could have like a million descendants, like to match the stars in the sky tonight. Now, I wonder about you. You know, when God makes a promise over your life, do you try and work out ways in which you can defend God's dignity? Are you like, oh, the Lord has promised me this. Now, I'm going to find a way of helping God out. Even if the mechanism or the methodology behind helping him out is actually incredibly destructive. But it's okay, because like, at least God will look good in the end. Now, the fact is, God doesn't need any help to work this stuff out. Yes, Hagar hey, has it's son. Ishmael. But Sarah has a son, Isaac, a child of promise. God didn't need any help. You know what I mean? So much better for the whole world if Abraham and Sarah hadn't made that first decision. But they made a bad decision, and then God demonstrated that his promise to them was true. God didn't need to be defended. And so, Paul's encouraging those early Gentile believers to recognize that they are part of this precious story. Hagar was a slave, and I feel like she fulfilled an obligation, a horrible situation. She fulfilled the sexual obligation to her master. It's a evidence of, of ancient sexual slavery, which links to some of the connections we have in, with IGN today about modern sexual slavery. It's the story of sexual slavery through millennia. And here, Hagar fulfills a a slave's obligation to her master. Sarah was a wife of promise, a wife without expectation. And yet God chose to come and to bless them with the long, longed-for child. If you like, the ambition of those two couplings was exactly the same. The ambition was the provision of a child. But the methodology was so different. You know, so often, like, we're like, oh, my ambition is like this. This is the ambition I have. But the road to get to the fulfillment of that ambition? Have we considered what the Lord is saying? Do we need to help him out today? Or can we let him be God and let us be us? For Paul, the central argument against the Galatian legalists is that they wanted to exchange the generous promise of God for something born out of obligation. And this is the really important language for us in the church today. They wanted to exchange the generous promise of God, that was God's promise to Sarah, for the slave-based obligation that Hagar felt to her master. And and I want to say to this, with all the passion in my heart, that we have in the Christian life such a temptation to exchange the promise of God made to Sarah for the obligation of the slave in Hagar. we, We brutalize the nature of God himself. For Hagar, Abraham was God in her universe. He was the draconian slave master who bought her and now she was obligated to sleep with him. But Sarah was a wife of promise who was free. And in fact, she was sometimes really free. She laughed in the face of God Himself when God suggested that she might have a child in her old age. She was a liberated woman of freedom. Abraham wasn't her master in the way that Abraham was Hagar's master, God was her master. She wasn't obligated, she was liberated. She was sitting under promise. Have we exchanged the promise and the freedom of God for the obligation as slaves to a draconian slave master? When I I go out on the street sometimes, I I talk to people about what they think about God. You know, you get that, don't you? Have you tried that? Oh, uh, are you interested in Christianity? No, I feel guilty enough as it is. Uh, Are you interested in Christianity? No, I'm not really interested in being bossed around by someone in the sky. You're interested in Christianity, no, I don't like all the laws and rules you have to keep. The world has exchanged a vision of the free promise of God for a vision of the slave master Abraham. And and Paul wants to say, why on earth, in your right mind, would you exchange this promise that we have in Christ Jesus for this law, which, which was only ever going to be temporary and judges you harshly, and leaves you find wanting. Why would you do that, you foolish Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? It's like a curse, it's like some kind of blindness. You know, Jesus himself confirms this when he says in John 15, 15, I no longer call you slaves, because a slave does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends, for everything I've learned from my father I've made known to you. you know, if we want to know that the, that the curse of slavery is over, it's found in Jesus' relationship with his disciples. I'm not calling you slaves anymore because you're not slaves. Because I fulfilled the law, therefore I've called you friends. You're my brothers and sisters. You're sitting under the promise of God. A promise, a blessing. Something which you can receive without obligation again. You know, Paul's challenge to the Gentile legalists is not that they were choosing a parallel path, but that they were regressing down a road to nowhere. Have you ever found yourself going down a road to nowhere? I, I, um, when I was a gap year student, I worked in a, as an outdoor instructor in North Wales, and it was great because I love outdoor sports, but sometimes, quite regularly in fact, I'd have to drive a minibus filled with lads, and then I'd have a, a sea kayak trailer on the back, which was really massive. And then I'd have to drive through the small lanes of North Wales around Abersock to try and get to some beach where I was supposed to drop off the sea kayakers and then I was supposed to drive up the coast sort of five miles and then pick them up at the other end. And so I remember going down these tiny lanes and you know you're in trouble when your wing mirrors get hit by the, by the bramble bushes and, you know, and, you can hit, and it's getting more intense and you can see the boys looking out the window and then finally you get to that point where you just, you hear that and you just can't move any further. And then the boys, sir, sir, are we going sea kayaking, sir? You're like, um, yeah, we're we are on our way. So do you think we're actually going to make it to the beach, sir? I'm hoping we will. So have you noticed that we are in a really narrow lane, sir? Uh, yes, I did notice that. And then you've got to try and reverse a sea kayak trailer and a minibus together down the lane that you couldn't even get out of the the van if you tried. Beep. 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 You know, so often in life we find ourselves down a road to nowhere. And we had great intentions. We had a great vision of the freedom on the other side. And here we are hooked up and constrained. But The temptation is in our pride to go, Oh, I think I just keep on going forward. I keep on trying to push through. I keep on driving my truck. Hopefully I'll, I'll find a way until we're completely stuck. Some have started out with good intentions in Christian ministry, really see the promise of the Lord for the people of God. Suddenly, I've driven myself down this narrow lane. It was a road to nowhere. I've got a little game for you. You have to say whether you think it's a, a road to somewhere or a road to nowhere. My, my first road, Is it, it's a total guessing game. Is it road to somewhere? Hands up. You're good at this. Is it a road to nowhere? Okay. It's a road to nowhere. It's the A30. 83. It costs 30 million pounds. There we are. Have we got another one. Is it a road to somewhere? Oh a few people. They're very bold. It, where is it? It's a road to It's a road to nowhere. It's another one in Scotland. 23 million pounds. the A830. Is it one in Hindhead? There's another one. Is it a road to somewhere? Oh, you're so, but surely there's one in here that's going to win. No, I think it's another road to nowhere. Here we are. It's Glencoe, 15 million pounds. There we are. Where's that one in Hindhead down at the end? The one that goes absolutely nowhere. Let's have a look at that one. I'm not going to put you through any more pain. Oh yeah, this is great. Look at that. The A2, Gravesend, 8 million pounds. Just goes straight into a fence and a great pile of rubble. We could go on. You know, there isn't a single one of these roads that go somewhere, just to point out. They've all cost 30 million pounds or all down to 8 million pounds. The point of the illustration is, it costs you a lot to go nowhere. It costs you so much to go nowhere. And, and Paul's saying to the Gentile Christians, look, if you choose this new legalism, it's not a free parallel path to God. This will cost you the very grace that saved you in the first place. Because if the law worked, Christ died for nothing. If you were righteous in and of yourself, Christ died for nothing. The fact is that not one of us are righteous, that we all need the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in order that we might receive grace so that we might be one with God. There's nothing in the law that can save us. Only Christ can save us from the law. And so Paul's so passionate about this reality. He takes the argument stage further, not just that Sarah and Hagar represent two opposing methodologies, but they bear opposing fruits. Now, we, we look then at Ishmael, who represents Mount Sinai for Paul. That's where Moses received the law. Uh, and then subsequently represents the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, at this point in Jerusalem's history, Jerusalem has just been overwhelmed. The temple has been destroyed and the city is currently in, captive, in captivity and all the people are slaves so this is a really lively illustration for the first century Christians because they're saying have you heard what's going on in Jerusalem this is not 2,000 years ago this is what's happening today in Jerusalem it's in slavery but you've not been called to be children of the old Jerusalem you've been called to be children of a new Jerusalem a Jerusalem that's above Isaac is the fruit of Sarah And Isaac is free. And the new Jerusalem, the holy city of heaven, it is free also. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The church is the new Jerusalem. It's the fruit of the kingdom, a place of new freedom for you and for me. And so for you tonight, are you living your life in the new Jerusalem? Or has your Christian faith become filled with obligation? I find it amazing how we complexify. Now, I've been loving doing the children's services in the morning over this last year. Initially, you, you say to a clergy person, all age service, and they go pale and potentially vomit. <laughs> but, but I have learned so much about God through this season. Because you know what? There aren't better Christians There are just Christians. There aren't more knowledgeable Christians in the sense of a Salvitic knowledge. You can't know the salvation of God more fully. You can just be saved. It's an ontological end place. It's like a DNA. You're saved or you're not saved, but you can't be more saved or less saved. Something about distilling the truth of the Scriptures for four-year-olds has taught me Exactly what Jesus meant when he said, unless you become like little children, you cannot receive the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is not about complexifying the message. It's about the simplification of the message. The truth is, either Jesus died and rose again and was the son of God and made a way for us, or he wasn't. But the decision to receive him is a decision that you make to either be saved or not to be saved. But there aren't any other statuses in the Christian life. You know, I'm worried about the, I've got to be honest, I'm worried about the church in the UK. I'm worried, I feel worried about it. I sweat about it with my friends. You know, we have meetings about it. And we say, do you think it's gonna be okay? And a bit like Abraham, thinking, do you think we need to sleep with Hagar to make something happen? That sounds odd, but you understand the the inference. Do we need to save the church? And then we remind ourselves that we're children of promise and that ultimately this is God's work. Things looked bleak for Abraham and Sarah at 190 years old without children. Things look a little bit bleak at the moment in terms of the numbers of young people in the church in the UK. But I still believe I still believe that God is sovereign and that salvation means salvation. Paul's making a legacy point. Your children in a family line that was built on a promise. If you wanna look back, look back at the promise. You wanna look at some tight spots in the church's history. You can see quite a few. You wanna look at some difficult times in the church in London track back into the 17th century and you'll find that most of the clergy were wasted on gin and lots of them didn't believe in Jesus. But then we got the Methodists and somehow the church erupted in faith again. Look back at the promises that God has fulfilled and we suddenly realize we're children of promise. We don't need to complexify and overwork and we don't need to defend the dignity of God because he will defend his own. Paul's pointing out that there is no mixed models here in verse 30. He says, the slave woman's son will never share the inheritance of the free woman's son. That's a big statement. I'm a Christian, I'm thinking, Paul, that's a bit harsh, throwing out the slave woman and her son. I mean, you know, it's not very inclusive to do that in the church. So if we could just keep everyone in, that would be really good. But what he's saying is you cannot mix the model. You're either a free child of the promise or you're subject to the law, but you can't have it both ways. I'd love to believe that we all were children of promise, but I know that there's a legalist hiding in my heart. He loves to jump out and go, well, if you did it just like that, God would really love you. Or if you did that, maybe God would be really impressed by you and he would love you a bit more. And if you just didn't do any more of that, then that would be good because God doesn't really love you when you do that. There's a legalist crouching behind my heart, whispering in my ear, stealing the truth of what it means to be a free child of God. I wonder if there's a whispering legalist in your ear tonight. I wonder if your Christian joy has become Christian obligation. If you're wondering why you're still coming to church. If you're wondering why it's just not lighting you up anymore. I want to, tonight, enable you through this really complex allegory to find the two simple truths you need to know. That you're a child of promise and that God doesn't need you to defend his dignity. He's still good. He's still God. And you can't mix that model anymore. Why don't we stand and respond? Maybe just want to own the legalist in your heart for a minute and let's just bring that person to Jesus right now Lord we want to thank you for the revelation of this passage of Galatians and we pray supernaturally now Lord would you affirm in us that we are children of a promise not children who are slaves to obligation and Lord We know that there's a legalist hiding behind our hearts, waiting to condemn us. And yet you, Lord, do not condemn us. You have saved us, you have purified us, you've sanctified us, and our names are written in your book of life. And we pray right now, Lord, you'd quieten that voice that condemns us, and you'd enable the voice of promise within us that the joy that is ours as children of promise would be restored to us tonight. Come Holy Spirit, in every religious soul in this room, Lord have mercy on us. In every child of very godly and religious parents, Lord, would you have mercy on us? In every one of us from school chapels throughout the ages, Lord, would you have mercy on us and liberate us? Lord, in every one of us who have complexified faith at the point at which we've lost sight of joy, have mercy on us. Lord, on every one of us who are quick to judge ourselves according to the law rather than grace, have mercy upon us. Lord, we know a joyful church is an attractive church to a hurting world. And we pray, Spirit of God, would you release joy in your church tonight? Would you lead us to ease from burden? Would you stop us trying so hard? And would you restore the fun in this place? Liberate us, Lord, to begin to have fun again in your name. Thank you, Father, that you've called us to this, to leap like lambs. Come, Lord Jesus, would you liberate us to joy again? We feel your spirit here. We pray, increase your spirit amongst us. And as we spend time in fellowship tonight before England win, would you just bring the light to our hearts? enabled us all to share the stories of what it means to be children of the promise of God come Holy Spirit we lift our voice to you now